Welcome to the 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast, a retrospective. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade. Today, uh, we're super excited to bring you Cult of the Blood Gods. We'd like to get on this real close and, uh, and, and close to the drop, which came out uh, last Wednesday, but here we are now. We got it, and we're excited to talk about it. So the first thing I kind of want to do is introduce everybody who's here. Uh, today, we have Brennan, Chris, and John. Hey, hey. Hi, everyone. Hey, everyone. And I, of course, am Nick. Uh, we're once again without Bob. He's off on vacation. Don't worry, folks. He'll be coming back shortly. But uh, I, I guess I kind of want to jump right into the book. Um, did any of you guys get a chance to read the opening story? We did. Who wants to take lead on that one? Brent, I see you opening your mouth. You're up. Yeah, you start. Oh, you want me? All right, fine. I'll, I'll jump on that. So the, <laughs> the opening story, uh, I can't even remember what they called. It. Oh, yeah. Just another family dinner, right? Because, you know, Clan of Dead, Giovanni, they're all one big happy family, right? So <laughs> this is just another family dinner, <laughs> right. sir. Oh, yeah. So they kind of. I, I looking back at it, I guess they kind of like throughout the story, they had flashbacks to like previous scenes or something. I when I read this, I had a very like Pulp Fiction vibe going on, right, where they jump between different things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So oh, it yeah. starts out with what I assume is actually the the family reunion. It might not be, uh, but you it, there's this woman, uh, Maria. I can't remember her surname. She is a Pisanob, but it's not. Mm-hmm. That's not her surname in it because she's like Ibarra is who she introduces herself uh, as yep that's true and she's at the family reunion and she's sitting down she's talking with her girlfriend and then she strikes up a conversation with uh putinesca and then she looks across the room and there's a harbinger of skull and like a a big black sweater that starts like kind of like kind of apologizing but not really apologizing to a japanese giovanni <laughs> over in the table and he kind of bows and you're like what is happening here like this is a very awkward situation right and then the the backflash or the flashbacks are her um it's actually really tragic. It's her not getting to her sire's haven in time enough to save him and discovering mm. that her sire was killed by the Putinesca, which leads her on like this short mini like a uh, noir investigation Ooh. of all right, the Putinesca are like, you know, they're shit kickers, right? They're they're head bashers. They're not smart. They couldn't have found his haven. Who's doing this? <laughs> <laughs> So there's a scene. I know someone told yeah. you. Just so who it goes was it? back to the dinner. She's talking with this other Putinesca and her girlfriend. And then another flashback happens and she's torturing a harbinger of skull completely showing that she can like, uh, you know, she can act like a normal human when she wants to. But she's uh, she's like the undead version of Count of Monte Cristo is what she's become. Oh, wow. And then it, it ends with a, a big reveal. I'll let you two talk about that. You two. DJ and John, because uh, I actually don't want to spoil this for the listeners, because I actually like that little twist at the end. But, I think um, if we were getting as close as possible to it, it's a it's a good story leading up to, like, as you were mentioning, in a Tarantino ish type of way, just those flashbacks getting into it. But it gives you a better idea, I guess, of what's currently happening with the Hikata as a whole, um, primarily because you, you have an elder's point of view that they are all banded together. These bloodlines, Clan Giovanni or what was Clan Giovanni together. But it doesn't mean that they're all about it. There's internal strife. There's still bad blood, quite literally, between all of them. And seeing this come to fruition is uh, is a game within a game. So I thought it was really cool to see how uh, it played itself out. And it gives me inspiration uh, to see what would happen next. But I, I thought it was a cool story. Agreed, agreed. And um, 
I really enjoyed how like throughout the entire uh, throughout the entire, you know, first couple pages of that short story, how there's this theme of like everybody's got problems right there are all these um, trials and traumas going on with all these different clans and they're all coming together and they're going to try to put that aside. But this theme of conflict is actually one that kind of kind of creeps in through a lot of the other parts of the book itself. And this is a really good kind of tease that you get. So again, great story, I thought as well. Awesome. So um, the, we actually, we, we did something a little bit different with, uh, with this than we normally do uh, because we have so many people on here. Um, what we decided to do was kind of uh, was cut the book into different chunks. And each one of us uh, took a deep dive and focus on each of those individual chunks. And the rest of us are getting our raw reaction to it, um, you know, kind of as, as people are talking about it. Uh, so to, to kind of start it off, uh, the, the book breaks into uh, several different areas uh, where it talks about basically the, uh, the rise of different cults and, and religions and things like that. It starts talking specifically about clan Hakata in, in a couple of different places and mortal cults. And then, uh, and then basically how you can start building your own cults and, uh, and how the Hakata react with, uh, with oblivion. And uh, they have sections in here for uh, bloodlines and lore sheets. But also at the end, they have a, uh, a mini chronicle you can run, uh, as well as a bunch of other plot ideas and things like that to go over. So to, to kind of kick us off, um, I want to send it over to you, John, so you can uh, start talking about, uh, well, these rise of religions. All right. So chapter one. Uh, so chapter one of Cult of the Blood Gods does a really good job at just like giving you an idea of kind of what these cults uh, do and how they behave in the actual game itself, right? So, uh, uh, much like some of the uh, other books that they put out before, especially like the Guide to Cam, the Guide to the Anarchs, especially where they just have a bunch of tales that kind of give you an idea as to um, what's going on in the game world itself. This is the same idea, right? So you don't get any crunch in the first chapter, uh, but trust me, there there is a lot more crunch later, but. Oh, that's good. I, I don't need crunch. <laughs> <laughs> Fair play. Right. And so for those of you that are like huge fans of just story and theme, like chapter one will have you hooked. Uh, and it pretty much is a bunch of tales told from a, told from um, different kind of groups, points of view. You've got the Caitiff, you've got the Anarchs, you've got Cam, you've got everybody coming together and giving you an idea as to from their perspective, what is it like? when these cults begin to pop up, right? Um, the first story is actually one from the Cam perspective, which I really enjoyed because I know when I read the the guide to the Camarilla when it came out, I was so thrown for a loop when they started talking about this this like mm-hmm. church of the elders popping. I'm like, well, like yeah, what yeah. is this stuff? Like, this is not Cam related. What are you doing? Um, <laughs> and... Now you get this conversation between these like high players within the cam about why that's happening. I'm like, oh, it makes so much more sense now. And pretty much uh, not to, you know, spoil it too much. Um, the world that the cam is in right now is just one in turmoil, right? There's stuff coming at them like from every direction. They need something to give um, to give people some kind of uh, like a source of calm. 
And they've decided to choose the church as their way to do that. It's like, hey, guys, we got this thing. Now, please pay attention to this while we deal with all the other (laughs) stuff going on, (laughs) which I thought was actually pretty smart play on them. But uh, and and that's pretty much like just a start. Like it goes through a bunch of other stories which i'm not gonna you know go over too in-depthly because y'all can read them yourselves um i'm but i'm just gonna share the one that i enjoyed the most and then like drop it off to Mm -hmm. you guys to see if anyone's like jumped out or you's like whoa shit that's a real good story um there was one that was told from the perspective of it was an interrogation right and they had some unnamed kindred there and it was members of the second inquisition and they grabbed him and they were doing all of these tests and just um the way the story is told it's pretty much uh showing how inhumane the humans are being to this because they don't they don't view them as a person Mm -hmm. anymore right they're a thing and Mm. they're just doing all these tests all these things to see how they react they'll make a note like oh it's crying. That's interesting. I didn't I, I didn't think it could cry. I'm like, oh damn. And it just gets worse from there. Which is which is like which is pretty trippy because you expect that to be from the kindred you're playing, not necessarily the humans. So that was a pretty cool little switch there. I keep stabbing this one and it yells at me. I don't understand why. <laughs> exactly. That's real, though. If you found what you know is a talking corpse. How much could you poke it before you started caring? That is true. Who knows? Um, But the story ends in a really interesting way. um, And it kind of brings in the um, the kind of cult um, part of the book in a really kind of surprising way, which I thought which I thought was pretty cool. Right on. DJ, lead us right into the next section. So our next section, chapter two, is about kindred religions. This is going to be your meat and potatoes for the most part, folks. Um, the stuff that you'll definitely look at here are the main cults, uh, starting off with the Ashfinders. So the Ashfinders end up becoming this cult that primarily speaks about many Duskborn, or what you would consider your Thinbloods, uh, being the primary focus of mm. it. They talk about how this new drug is kind of going around. Ash, spelled with an E at the end because it's cooler that way. Um, yeah. <laughs> but what ends up happening here is that there's, there's an entire conspiracy regarding the fact that there's a forward-facing um, institution, the Cinder Institute which is how they try drawing more people into it, right? Pun with names, but they try drawing more people into it. Um, it, it draws your new agers, your yogis, people that are into the experience itself. Uh, what makes it devious and insidious, though, is that these Ashfinders are these like thin bloods, the way that they get their highs. And it only applies to them. Any other person like taking this particular drug, it doesn't do anything to. But for these thin bloods, when they take the drug, it's them living out the memories of other vampires. But what is this drug? Ooh. What is this drug? You might say it, it must. It must be made from the ashes of a dead vampire. Of course, dun dun dun. Yeah, and ah. that's exactly what it is. So <laughs> drama. In order to circumvent the albury, because they even know that it's a bad idea to diabolize vampires, they just get some ashes, mix them all together for the most part, and just snort it, take it whichever way you want to, boot it, and lo and behold, memories galore. Uh, I actually like that. I like that idea. That's that's pretty cool. I, what that, that sounds like vampire milk blood, but all right, uh, I guess it fits the thing. <laughs> what is milk blood? What is milk blood? Milk blood? It's like you might have to edit this out of the podcast. I'll be I'll be legit. <laughs> milk <laughs> milk blood. Ahead, milk ahead. blood is um. Uh, there's a lot of heroin addicts. Well, after they shoot up, they'll actually extract some of their blood, and it'll be a little milky, so they can save it for later. Like if they run out, or in order to trade it 
Uh, also, in some shitty situations, whenever their friends OD, they'll also take some of their blood because it'll be, you know, stronger and then they'll take it or save it for later or sell it. So that's called milk blood when you do that. Uh, and that that just sounds oh, like the vampire fact. version of that. Except with memories. Wow. That's actually that's actually super interesting. Whereas that's a word wrong. for it. <laughs> <laughs> don't try it at home, kids. Yeah, definitely not. <laughs> Please don't, don't do drugs at home. Yeah, don't do drugs. Don't do drugs. <laughs> but what it does do, though, is that uh, starting off with this particular cult, it gives you an idea that all of them have a level of complication and the definite darkness uh, that, that comes with it. The level of maturity, and I, we should probably have stated this in the beginning, but now coming into it, um, these cults are, are no joke. These religions, quote unquote, are, are definitely not a light theme to approach, if anything at all. <laughs> One of the things I could definitely let you know from from experience and having read this section is like each one of them adds that really good personal horror to it because everyone has to cling on to something and you'd be amazed at what they do. So with these new, you know, these thin bloods, they're all about that ash and it's always about continuously following it through, trying to get more and more and more of it. And what's even worse about it is that it's it's all like part of a scheme with uh, Dr. Mortius, who happens to be a Tremere coming out of Milwaukee, one of Carnus Child. And it's him just testing stuff out, going like, hey, I'll give you some of it, you know, make a blood uh, <laughs> blood sorcery out of it. You figure it out. Let me just distribute it out to the streets and let's see what the young kids are like nowadays. And it is <laughs> so it's a thing. The, the, the child of Karna, the one that like freed a lot of the Tremere, used his newfound freedom to become a drug dealer. He's experimenting on his so great work. Yes, I was about to say. All right. I, I'm not against he, it. I'm just clarifying. <laughs> So, you know, wow. one of the things there to kind of go over as well is um, the each section for the cults also presents to you not only the story, but a, a location such as the Cinder Institute in Ibiza, what it actually you know looks like over there. Um, and it also presents to you a couple of convictions. So, for example, some of the convictions, which some folks who are used to V20 might think of these as like path tenants or hierarchies. So you have some like always sample new experiences to offer, never withhold ash from another who wishes to sample it, never allow someone to silence Ooh, you. Wow. Always listen okay. to the greater experience. Always mm-hmm. know where the next fix is coming from. Never allow the kind to realize your undone nature. Those are some really, really cool things happening there. Um, that's actually, wow, that's, that's awesome. It is. And um, what it'll also do is it'll also present to you a little bit, especially for each cult, uh, something cool regarding that cult specifically, whether it be a character such as Amber Freeman, who happens to be the, the thin blood, um, who works with Dr. Mortius in terms of being the face. So she runs the organization through proxy, but it also speaks about a nice cool creature called the beast shards. Now the beast shards are these things like these, you would almost think they're hallucinations, but they're not because they come after you. And some people consider it, or rather some of these uh, members of this cult consider it a rite of passage to defeat your first beast shard. And the beast shards are typically like echoes of the last vampire you snorted. Yeah. Like they're beast. <laughs> Like almost attacking you? Um, or, yeah, it's like a, a 13 ghost type ordeal where you just see them keep coming after you. And now you got your high, but you still got the demons coming for you, um, having done what you did. I, that's that's actually really cool. That's that's actually <laughs> that could be amazing. That could be amazing in a chronicle. It is. Uh, if it, and one of the things is uh, we we did start up a new V5 chronicle uh, in Chicago and in Gary and one of our characters. One of our players wants to go down the route of Ashfinders, and uh, we're going to see where that turns up. But it's going to be an interesting wild ride, considering it. Um, it also does give <laughs> you some mechanics. So there is thin blood alchemy in the back of this particular section, speaking of how to create the ash, uh, what the levels of ash are, how to induce it, what it does do for others, and that was pretty cool. 
Um, the next thing it leads us to is about the Bahari, the children mm-hmm. of Lilith. And there's a lot of stuff ad nauseum that we've covered in previous books here. And I think the the one that really comes into, um, you know, a couple of pieces that I thought were very interesting about this one section is, you know, what does she stand for? What is Lilith? And there's, you know, the, she's the mother. She's the the one who is full of vengeance, retribution, but at the same token, had no fear at all. Um, it speaks about some of the beliefs in terms of how the Bahari know that she also was one of the greatest gardeners of Eden. In terms of the cool, crunchy stuff that the, the Baharis have are definitely rituals. Uh, the rituals that they are able to enact are pretty good. In this case, they could coax the garden. Um, one of the abilities is to uh, have like become like poison ivy and have the earth defend you. They also have uh, one other ritual that they do have is Eden's bounty. Uh, this particular ritual, the ingredients are a dead body, a living tree, one fresh apple, and one rotten apple. <laughs> Ooh, I like <laughs> that one. We're taking guesses here. You can only imagine where Balance. this is going to go. But the, the TLDR of it essentially is you grab the dead body, you place it up against the tree. You got to fit that fresh apple in its mouth come hell or high water. How you choose to do it is on to you. Put the rotten apple in your mouth, and once it's actually complete, the the body gets absorbed into the tree. Everyone within X amount of miles from you just bleed out into the ground, and it develops into the rotten apple, and you just soak it all up. And everyone just oh. feels... <laughs> How awesome is that? This is one of the coolest... I just jumped to it real quick and skimming it. This is one of the coolest things I've ever read. You glossed over something, but I want to I want to hammer in the brutality of this ritual, right? It's a corpse, right? But it's like you got to fit it in the mouth. If if the apple is too big, literally hammer it in, dislocate the jaw, rip open the throat and shove it in there. It doesn't matter as long as it fits somehow. I'm like, what? What? <laughs> it's a dead body. Who cares? Let's talk about all the people who have to bleed into the ground for 20 miles oh, around yeah. Well, you. Yeah, there's that, too. <laughs> That's more than just theft of Vitae. That's like theft of if you do this in a city, mm-hmm. can you imagine that? Like like LA, like 30 million people bleeding into the ground. Well, the pavement there, but you know, into the ground. It's a thing. Uh, it, it definitely is. Uh it, it doesn't come with a recompense, and it's definitely all inspiring in every sense of the word. But imagine having to put it to use and showing that the dark mother does uh give back gifts. There is <laughs> asking to be hunted is really no, yeah, what that I mean, is. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's be real. <laughs> All right. That could be the beginning of any story. <laughs> I, I know you're about to move on to the Church yeah. of Cain. I just want it to be clear. I am absolutely doing like a pro and con, like a versus between these two. And I'm more interested to see which one comes out on top, at least according to us. Which one? The Church of Cain mm. and the, the Bahari? And Bahari. Ooh, yeah. okay. Well, mm. All right. Uh, we'll get over to the Church of Cain, otherwise known as the Gnostics. The best way of describing them, folks, is if we've once again covered in a previous podcast in which it's a heresy in which Cain is the is a designated angel by God. He was chosen in the first place, which means that you as well are chosen. They believe that uh, hell is on earth and that you working towards your purpose only will layer it upon itself. You know, if, if there's hell, then there definitely is a heaven. And if you serve your purpose towards it, then you're fulfilling the, the will of God because if he ordained Cain to be on this planet and do what he needed to do as an apex predator, then you are doing his will as well. What makes it interesting, though, is that, as we all know, it is a considered uh, a, a heresy. In fact, it's a Cainite heresy to, to begin with. Now, the difference of it, though, is that mortals are just chow food. They are the lowest <laughs> denizens of hell. <laughs> if you're in hell, you're there to get out of it. But you're getting out of it because you're doing, the, you're doing Cain's will, which is also doing God's will by comparison. And 
you know, as you're taking a look at it, one would think that as well. But this is once again one of the Lissandra constructs that exist. Uh, due to the beckoning, everyone who was around for the most part to kind of cl- claim it as a heresy just kind of, well, the MacGuffin stand still. They're, they're out of the picture. And so the heresy came back um, and it ended up working. Why? Because many Canines who don't have the ability to figure out what it is that they are are more comfortable understanding, well, if Cain's an angel, then I'm not that much of a monster, am I? Or if I am a monster, then I have a place, which means I don't have to worry about my humanity eroding if I just act in the will of God, who happens to have chosen Cain, um, you know, as his, as his creature, as his, as his angel. Um, <laughs> but what it does mention. Oh, so they almost see themselves as like a sick kind of shepherd. Yeah. That is mm-hmm. that is definitely the case. And, you know, they spoke about how originally Cain was supposed to come around 1239 uh, common era. But then when the heresy got stopped, that delayed Cain coming because they figured Cain came. He saw none of his uh, followers and he's like, well, I'm going to go back to sleep. I'll come back later. <laughs> right. Never heard this. He, he just hit the five more minutes button on the alarm clock. That's what the. Yes. Yep. What? He's yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, continue. <laughs> I'll be back in like 600 years. Guys, do it right next time. But Josh, in aside, uh, last thing we speak about is new rituals. And I think this was the one that draws a lot of Cambro attention, which is the reintroduction of Lures of, uh, Lures of Flame, but as rituals yeah. instead. Um, mm. It gets brought back uh, in this particular case and specifically for the Church of Cain um, because of the fact that they do get over their, their fear of fire. And so the command of fire is very strong. It comes in the form of um, three levels of this particular ritual. We could start saying with the beginning one uh, assisting you with being able to defeat Rachek, and the highest level or the third one that is introduced, which is a uh, Gresio Ignis, which is pretty much dousing your arms in blood and setting mm-hmm. them ablaze and using them as weapons. That's uh, that's old school. That's uh, direct out of thaumaturgy from the Dark Ages. I mean, it, it functions slightly differently, but the heart is there. The heart is there, and I think Coming across this particular ritual is that uh, we'll start seeing, especially in different parts of the uh, the cults, there's a lot of things that do make a lot more sense, at least to me as rituals, and they do as innate um, discipline usage, because there is time that has to be spent into bringing it back up. It's not innate use of the blood. It's something that you cultivate, right? And there's a certain level of worship and ceremony that has to go into it. So I could see why they, they went down that particular route. Um, that brings us next to the Church of Set. Woo, woo. The the Church of Set uh, corruption. A lot of it uh, in here is actually rehashed from the stuff that we've read, not only in the Followers of Set book, but things that were also in the Dark Ages book regarding the Church of Set. They do speak about as well and make references to the Witches of Kidna um, mm. and how they had Good. one point did exist but weren't around anymore, and how in certain cases Baharist fill in that aspect if they needed to bring them in and work as an alliance side by side with the Church of Set. Because it is going through breaking down chains, whatever it might be, and reforging them. Um, what it does nice. go over a lot of, though, is the differences between those that are considered just your generic ministry members versus those that mm-hmm. remained Church of Set. And I think it spends a, I was wondering about a that. lot more time is spent yeah. here because they do talk about, uh, without spoiling too, too much, it's the fact that the, is it, is it really that they split off and then there's only an ardent amount of Church of Set followers versus those who are ministry? But we always talk about as well that, Set takes on many faces. And so is it then a lie that it's also possible that ministers are also just members of the church of set that just happen to be the anarch face of things? The opposite of that ends up becoming that they believe that the, the ministers are just there to lead the anarchs and take their place as the Lissambra would have taken their place and it's about to be, you know, leaders. <laughs> <laughs> if they could use religion as a tool, 
But that's where the church is set officially separates from the, the ministers in terms of how they operate there. So I thought that was really, really interesting. Brennan, you had a thought to go with that. I, I was just going to say during my I, I've not run a V5 game, right? Uh, I have the I've referenced the Anarch book for V5 several times. One thing I'm still not sure on is, well, you talked about how the cult, the church of set is different from the ministers. I never really understood what the ministry did inside the movie. Is that at all important? To know at, at this point in the podcast or for this episode in general, it's interesting you mention that because it does go over um, why they they are the heart in the same way that the Sabbat needed um, your priest to kind of be the the thing that keeps your group together. Even anarchs who are rousing against stuff need to get focused back. Something has to bring them back to center, and so the ministers are there to fill that particular role. Hmm. Nice. Okay, so so now I really wish I had made a minister in that anarch game. I'm gonna. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna shove that into the back of my head for later though. Yeah, uh, sorry. Thank thank you, DJ. Actually, that that no that's awesome. Uh, it does give you new coterie type in terms of your powers. Some of these powers that you did see as Serpentis at one point, or parts of Serpentis do exist, uh, such as Mental Maze, which is a level three obfuscate power, True Love's Face, which is a level three uh, presence amalgam, and lastly, the Heart of Darkness, which is a level five um, Protean amalgam. Is that is that what I think right. it is? It is what you think it is. Nice. They brought it back. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, it's legendary. You have to bring it you back. Um, the next one is the Cult of Shalim. So for those of you who are all about the abyss mysticism, I wonder what happens when you stare too too much into the darkness. Uh, they they definitely brought this Ooh. back. It is all about losing yourself in completely nothing. Um, the best line here that I could read word for word is the Cult of Shalim preys on the fact that in the most unusual way, they, agents pride themselves on uncovering the great loves of a person's life, small joys and bonds that make the reality bearable. And they call upon those things to questions, exposing their temporary nature and sever them, leaving the target in the productions, oh. leaving no choice but to accept <laughs> the central doctrine of the faith that reality is suffering. In some ways, the cult of Shalim resembles the ministry and their, their methods. Oh, so yeah, right? the difference is the ministers in the church of set wish to replace the void with faith, whereas the cult of Shalim only cares for the void. Nothing replaces it. It's just all going to be dead. That's that's messed up. Isn't Cult <laughs> yeah. of Shalim first reference in Chicago by night? Uh, it, it is. Uh, yeah, yeah, it is. It, it is because they reference the rabbi in there mm. and they also have a lore sheet for it, but they go into a lot more here. Um, the, the best way to kind of describe it is to say that one of the cool parts is even Malkavians know that something's wrong with this. In the presence <laughs> of Malkavians who are taking a look <laughs> like, at other, wait like, a minute. <laughs> like other Shalomites, they know that something is inherently wrong. In fact, one of the most profound things that they mention is the, you know, the symbology for the Shalomites is uh, the cutout of a person with a hole in the middle. And whereas most people think it's depressing to just see like this hole in the center, the Shalomites are like, take away the person and you don't think of anything negative about it because you're too busy. You understand that without there being the person, everything's where it has to be. So that is that that's a that was really, really cool um, to kind of pay attention to two things that the Shalomite convictions never allow yourself to celebrate life. <laughs> yeah, because you know it's all going to die at some it, point. Yep. There's you know completely got, no point. It, it's got to go away. But the, we're nihilist Lebowski. We're nihilist Lebowski. We care about nothing. And uh, lastly, though, and I think is the cheekiest one that you do have in terms of a, a conviction is never maintain or protect more than a single mortal of importance. Uh, the reason why is because huh. while the while the need to cling onto the kind is recognized as an anchor in a tempestuous ocean, more than one is extravagance. I thought this was really really clever because. We still on humanity, folks. Like there is no path, and even having mm-hmm. these convictions only help mitigate stains. And even then, knowing that you have a mission to fulfill, 
it's almost paradoxical that you want to get back into the void, nothing, knowing that life is suffering, but you still need something to anchor you to give you a sense of identity long enough for you to complete your works. Um, in, in terms of arcane broing, they actually talk about some of the ceremonies. A lot of the stuff that you probably would see in the business, like I'll just talk about one of them called the uh, the pit of contemplation. It's literally uh, the ingredients you need for this ritual: a pot of ink, three to six, uh, three liters or six pints more of the blood of an innocent that was murdered, and an unlit room. And it's essentially <laughs> create an oubliette. Open it up, sucks you in, and into the hellhole you go. Oh, nice! They moved oubliette into a ritual. Yep. That's beautiful. Uh, and uh, the only way it stops is if uh, the, <laughs> the caster allows you to come back out. And or someone figures out how to reverse it, because if they kill the caster, you're screwed. Mm. And or if the caster chooses to go in with you, you're doubly screwed. So. <laughs> that, oh, well, wow. Congratulations. That's, uh, congratulations, that's DJ. I am now officially sadder than I was when you first started talking about Shalim. <laughs> um, so the next one's happy, right? Well, the next one is uh, <laughs> the Mithraic Mysteries. And it talks, it gives you some background uh, regarding uh, Mithras. His uh, his ascendancy, how he kept this cult up and going. Uh, one of the cool parts that it talks okay. about is like every time they built up a new church, it wasn't you know they had funds. Don't make this one extravagant; just build another mm. one. And so they kept expanding and expanding at such a rapid rate. It talks about the fall mm. uh, after Mithras was supposedly diabolized and he wasn't around, and how the cult started to lose um, some momentous some momentum. Um, but then it also goes over you know, what is really good about this particular culture? Why would people get into it? And it's because it's lockstep. It's order. It's essentially the antithesis of that, which is um, the Church of Set, which is chaos in terms of liberation. This tells you if you stay tight, everyone will be there to support you. And because you're, you are you know, at this pyramid ends in Mithras, Mithras is going to be up there like the sugar daddy he is, <laughs> take care of everything. He's going to make sure you're taken care of from the bottom. He's going to take care of you, baby. He will. Um, the powers that they, they talk about here are like slavish devotion. Anyone who, uh, if you use dominate on a mortal, uh, it's that much harder for them to, to get dominated as well. So it gives mm -hmm. them their own version of iron will, uh, shatter. It's exactly as you think it is, which is like throw a punch or throw, uh, a, a, sw a swing with a sword and just watch it just get broken. So that, that part was really cool. Oh, cool. Uh, next we get into the, the Nephilim, which is the children of the angel and, this one was a, a little bit interesting, but I could see where. It oh, of course, they would have yeah. this in here. <laughs> so kind of to give some interesting tidbits about here. We know that this is about Michael from Constantinople. We know that he had a particular dream. And sometimes mm -hmm. some people can't let things go. So his children weren't also able to let things go either. The short and sweet of this is his children, even up to three steps removed, have potent ass blood. So much so that you even drinking from it makes you that much more beautiful. Even Nosferatu drinking from it become a little bit less uglier. Mm. Doesn't mean they they shrug off their curse completely, but it does make them a little less uglier. So when you know that drinking straight from the tap gives you benefits, you got a lot of people who be about that as well. Uh, yeah, their main goal is essentially just bring back beauty into the world. Um, but they're so aloof about it, and it's crazy because they just don't care about anything else but that. They built their entire cult on the backs of everyone, even the Nosferatu. The Nosferatu's are literally the base. With the Nephilim being all the way at the top and everyone in the center being pillars. Um, what uh, then it goes into a couple minor cults uh, very, very quickly. There's the Amaranthans, which are essentially uh, named after the ancient warrior or Amarantha, who was the first victim of Diablerist. So mm -hmm. this cult just kind of bands together, and what they do is that they murder Diablerist. Uh, for the most part, they're left to they're left to exist because hey, if you're getting rid of Diablerist, that's fine by us. So most <laughs> domains actually let it happen. Yeah. Uh, 
there are the Cleopatrans, which are your Nosferatu who still want to bling up and look great about it. And whereas you might think like, wait, but how is this a cult outside of just Nosferatu wanting to bling up? There are stories that they dream of a beautiful naked figure that comes across them and pets them and gives them reassurances. And so the fact that they all have this vision makes you wonder, what is it? Is it really uh, Yimi? Uh, Yima, who was the one who originally supposedly got cursed the worst uh, than Obsidian Yard? Or is it something else? Or maybe a toy playing a trick? No one knows yet, but that's how cults go. You, you really don't know until you get to the top. Uh, the Cult of Isis, uh, which talks about very quickly looking at Isis as, uh, as Lilith, uh, Isis as Mary, as Hathor, yeah. or as Aquarius. That one is still out there. Um, the Eyes of Malachi, which is a little bit bizarre because it, it talks about uh, Lilith embracing Malachi, who was like sibling to, to Malkavian, and how they have their, their, their bouts where they just start going to murderous rages and or acting outside of it. But they're like, oh, you can't blame us. We're, we're the Eyes of Malachi. That one kind of threw me for <laughs> yeah. a loop. So it said Lilith embraced him. Like uh-huh. Lilith, the just not vampire? Yes. Well, the the Baharis believe Lilith was the progenitor, right? As well, right? So right. It, it's it's one of those things that's thrown up in legend. Could be true, could not be. It is. Uh, Gorgo's Nest, which is uh, the children of Gorgo, daughters of Gorgo, or simply the Gorgons. But the difference with them is that even though you believe that they might be Baharis, they're, they're actually a subsect. Um, whereas they're all about vengeance nonstop, all day, all night. There's no respite outside of vengeance. Uh, what it comes down to is there was a conflict between Gorgos Ness and Bahari. And at one point, they were like, nah, we ain't about this and just completely split mm-hmm. off. So that is what makes them different. So seeing that subsect is good. Um, last one, I believe, is the Ehos the Sea, which are the, 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 the children of sea, a cult that exists primarily in Peru and Bolivia, speaking about these moon like entities that exist. And their whole goal is essentially is to leave this world to enter the other world that's just full of moon. Um, what makes it nice and quirky, though, is that they'll have offerings that are left like cigars, drinks, etc., and they'll bring it down to these skeletons uh, inside this cave. But when they come back up, the uh, the offerings are gone. So what's actually down there? Not too sure. Um, hmm. There is uh, the, the sons and daughters of Helena and the Manalians. The short version of them between both of them is it's people just, it, it, they just jock riding on names, uh, using their names to kind of push forward on the sons and daughters of Helena, whereas the Manalians were all about Menelay, but then they found out that that freedom that they were looking for, that understanding, really wasn't what it was because they were still being bloodbounded and or directed by Menelay themselves. Uh, okay. One true way, uh, Christian conversions, hey, here, this is how you get to Konkanda. You choose to be in it, cool. And uh, like New Age hippies, for lack of a better term, and the servitors of Irad, who are, let's fight all day, all night. And if there wasn't a fight, we could fight for fight, is fight, for fight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got I got some comments about them when we get to their lore sheets, but it's for later in the cast. <laughs> yep. Uh, also, I am slightly disappointed that the one true way is not a Mandalorian cult. So, <laughs> man, it. Uh, I guess uh, I'll, I'll pick it up because in the next section uh, we start talking about the Hakata specifically, mm-hmm. and uh, and there's some very interesting things that's happening here. Like for one, um, the Hakata are still completely independent right so uh all the all the groups came together everybody had uh went through their ordeals and uh and suddenly they all banded together and said all right we're we're all we're all together as a family but we're still not getting involved in anybody's stuff and the trickiest part about this is the elders don't feel the beckoning which i guess you'd kind of have to do cuz some of them are so old that <laughs> Uh, a lot of these lines wouldn't even exist if there was a beckoning, right? Because they just entire mass exodus. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the cool thing about this entire section 
is they break things down um, from individual characters' perspectives and from the the section of the Hakata that they're from and how they talk about other sections. So it's really interesting. You know, you're used to like the the books where you get the uh, you know the the these clan breakdowns and then you look over in the other section and like tells you the the view from without and view from within everything like that. They kind of do the same thing here, but they mix it in with it. So it keeps you kind of compelled and gives you a voice and idea as to how they speak. But the first one comes through with uh, a Cori Giovanni of the Familia uh, is, is simply the way he calls it. You know, and they talk about the Giovanni section of the Hakata mm-hmm. and we all remember them as the Jovians, uh, you know, the, the master manipulators of coin and spirit. Um, but uh, the, the thing they introduce here, the idea they introduce is that they view Augustus as a failure of the clan. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with what happened um, in, in Becca's Jihad diary, there was a there was a, a bunch of harbingers of skulls who assaulted the uh, the Giovanni estate in Venice. Mm-hmm. And during that ass- that assault, Augustus Giovanni disappeared and the entire store of spirits that they'd been collecting the ghosts of the dead they've been tithing for 500 years erupted and exploded out mm-hmm. and and were set free so uh, the entire goal they've been trying to do this whole time this, this thing called the endless night they're trying to gather enough souls to tear a hole in the shroud and and bring about what they called the endless night apparently they did they didn't get all the way through with it before before it got tipped over <laughs> but uh and it, it talks about uh so immediately you're kind of thrown off you're like all right so why would the why would the Giovanni, you know, even want to join into a faction with the Harbingers of Skulls after this whole thing kind of hammered down? And you kind of get the idea from the next person's perspective, who's a Harbinger of Skull. And, uh, and they basically said, you know, like their fight was with, uh, was with two basic things, right? They got locked way in the way back day. Mm-hmm. They got locked into a place called Kemakli. It was an underground city by their own antediluvian Cappadocius. Um, and, uh, and, and it was called the feast of folly. He locked the, you know, everyone he could from the tribe in there and then, you know, just left them there to rot away and wither away. Those who he felt were, you know, just not, uh, as awesome as they could be for the clan. And they had to find a way out and they found a way out by going through the underworld, which means they tore a hole through the shroud, went into the underworld and then, uh, you know, like wandered the underworld forever until they could study and figure out what they needed to do to find their way back out again, which was uh, already way too late because by then the Giovanni had seen the writing on the wall and they, uh, and they decided to, uh, to, to eat Cappadocius and the fellow who did that Augustus Giovanni, of course. Mm-hmm. So their anger is not so much with, uh, with Augustus Giovanni, like uh, uh, hunting down and everything. Of course he did that when they got out. Because he didn't want any of those Cappadocians around anymore, but they're they're jealous that he beat them to the punch, right? He robbed them of their revenge on Cappadocius is basically their mentality of it, <laughs> and they're so hateful from all their time, like running through the underworld and and being consumed with vengeance that uh, it just uh, it never quite sit right with them. They're like, well. If we can't kill him, then we'll just kill you, right? <laughs> How dare you rob us of our of our bittersweet victory? So when they get through with this, you know, it's it's kind of like they get they get set out and they're like, all right, well, well what do we do now, right? And uh, and there's a single figurehead behind all of this who seems to be like pulling the pieces. And it's this guy called the Capuchin, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and he is an unknown figure. Nobody quite knows who he is. Maybe he's like uh, an old antediluvian or uh, or an old Methuselah, like Lazarus or something like that. Mm-hmm. Or or maybe he's a being that exists only on the other side of the shroud and nobody is quite sure what he is. Or maybe it's just a title. They pass from person to person, depending on, you know, when it needs to be. But one thing is known for sure. Um, anyone who actually knows who he is isn't saying a word. <laughs> but <laughs> what what this person does is they go in, they they help all the people escape from Kimakli, right? He's the one who showed them the way into the underworld. And then uh, and then after he did that and the harbingers come out and they decide they're gonna go to the Camarilla and say, Hey, save us from the Giovanni. And the camera like, well, our business dealings though. And <laughs> we made a promise. <laughs> yeah, sorry guys. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and immediately the, the harbingers logo screw you will join the spot right because you know not only are we pissed off at 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 the Giovanni now we're pissed at you too I will kill you both and you <laughs> know we'll kill you both and so when I say they're consumed with hate I mean that right it's to, it's something like they almost can't help it's almost like a a debilitating derangement at this point uh, but uh, they get together and they also start bringing in as you find out. Samedi and the Nagaraja and everyone like that. There's slowly this this subtle network happening under the Giovanni ranks mm-hmm. where all these people are getting together and kind of talking things over. And you find that these uh these subfamilies of the Giovanni aren't quite happy with the arrangement, like your milliners and your piss mm-hmm. knobs and all these people are just kind of like, well, we're we're tired of being second class Giovanni. And and they start talking about it. And lo and behold, at just the right moment, the capuchin arrives. <laughs> And he just says, hey, well, I've got a solution for all this disrest. What if we all just stormed Venice and killed Augustus Giovanni? And they're <laughs> all like, why, Capuchin? This is a great idea. Let's do it. <laughs> and this is kind of like a this is kind of what happens with Clan Giovanni is there's this uprising of those who were underneath, almost kind of like a, its own uh, anarch revolt. But it's from within the family, stays within the family, and they combine and form these these tedious uh, relationships because, of course, you know, when you all have the same goal, you have mm-hmm. to have these these weird tethers to each other in order to kind of continue forward. You know, the enemy of my enemy. So there were subfamilies of the Giovanni involved with this, but were there like surname Giovanni marching into Venice to kill Augustus as well? That's what you're telling me. It was like yes. everyone. Okay, cool. Well, not 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 everyone. There right. was I wouldn't there imagine was definitely would some. There was some shrapnel in this <laughs> yeah. in this conflict, uh, and uh, there's there's prominent leaders of the family Giovanni who kind of liked what Augustus was doing, wanted him to keep doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, Ignacio is uh, one of the people who's who's mentioned in here because there's a scathing section in here where Monica Giovanni writes a letter to Ignacio in what I can only call like the most teenager-ish section of the whole book, in which she is just throwing hate at him like you wouldn't believe of all the things he did wrong and how they're coming for him <laughs> you know <laughs> there was another thing that that they weren't aware of right and so the uh there was the, the promise of 1528 had a time limit it was 500 years uh-huh uh-huh so that's like just around the corner they're like wait a minute so you're telling me in like 10 years this is over with and they're like yeah okay well like how are we going to deal with it? Like uh, when, when things come, what if the, what if the cam comes from us? What, what moves have we been making? And, and Gus is like, well, we should have had the shroud down by now. <laughs> <laughs> but that didn't happen. So, so, I'll get back to you. Is there an extension I'm not going to make the project. 
Is there an extension clause? (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) So... Shit. So it's really interesting. What they do now is uh, is it, it kind of tells you like uh, they got a Dunsner who's explaining like everything that's happening. And uh, it's it's really interesting the way he he views this, like all these other clans coming in. He views it as a merger, but like they're Microsoft, like the Giovanni family is Microsoft and they're buying up all these tiny little subsidiaries, <laughs> you know, and just kind of gathering, you know, their technology into theirs. And you know, like uh, at any point, if we get tired of them, eh, we'll just we'll just shut them down. You know, we'll, we'll close out that that merger. And, you know, and they know that. So they're going to get along. Trust me. But the rest of these people are kind of like, hey, you know, the Giovanni, they, uh, they they've got a great face. They've got great relations with all these other sects and they've got a good business model running so we can just put our product on top of that. And it kind of works out. You know, it's uh, it's interesting that way. So. The immediate question you have is like, well, what do the Skull Monster Harbingers do now? It's interesting you should ask. They wear masks. (laughs) (laughs) Whoa, whoa. So you're telling me the clan that likes to wear masks is wearing masks now, huh? Yeah, still. Nice. Yeah, but it's not just any mask. The masks are important. Oh, no. They are. Thanks for masks. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, they've actually, they've kind of reverted back to their old methods. Right. You know, going back to their old uh, Cappadocian roots where they want to be advisors and seneschals and, you know, like uh, just little guys who kind of stir the pot out in the corner at at courts. Like they do this almost as like a a mercenary liaison. Right. They can jump in in the Camarilla, you know, and uh, and as long as they're not actually getting involved with any Camarilla politics or moving anything, everything's fine. But that's not to stop them from pulling somebody out of the side and be like, hey, what'd you think of that uh, that domain over there? So, uh, you know, I heard the annex were uh, looking to take a move on it. Maybe you want to do something about that. How, and, uh, how can they be effective at that job when they look like a corpse and have like a doll mask on their face? They wear a mask. They wear a mask. You can't They're have pretty. a mask covering like your skin and bone <laughs> arms, like literal skin and bone arm. <laughs> You can wear a wear a turtleneck too. All right, but to be fair, there's Nosferatu and Elysium, so I'm, yeah, I mean, I'm right. exaggerating a bit. But um, what really kind of like uh, got me excited was the the Samedi, right? Uh huh. They they joined in as one of the other top three in this section, and their kind of focus here is is not to to treat spirits the way that the Giovanni always have, where the Giovanni's like, I've got your fetter, now you're mine. Do as I say. By the way, show up here next money or next week with my envelope. Otherwise, you know, the, instead the uh, the the Smeddy are kind of like, hey, have some whiskey, have a cigar. Mm-hmm. Hey, do you remember those cool stories we told about you the other day with the kids? Oh yeah, man. Hey, you want to show me around the underworld? And the spirit's <laughs> like, yeah, bro, cool. I just, I I think you're awesome. And that was great whiskey. Yeah. And so it's it's kind of interesting. They have this ability like to. To let the Loa ride them, I guess the best mm. way to, to say it. Yeah, that's you know, uh, to kind of possess them. And uh and you know, as long as they treat the the Loa right, hopefully the Loa will treat them right while it's taking control of their bodies. Yeah. I mean that's that's like a, a large <laughs> and not eating voodoo. So not like eating their touchstones, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Tony Chrissy, you are tasty today. Uh um but we get other people in here as well, right? So obviously the Lamia come back, right? As we've seen. So There's excited Baharis about cults. the Lamia. I'm sorry. Oh, I, I'm a big fan. Where were they? They were where dead were they for, for like 200 you know, years. 200 centuries. Sir, they, were, they, were, they were literally gone. 
right? It, it says they were wiped out, just gone, wiped out. Except not and then, really. <laughs> and then, uh, like, out of nowhere, it seems like Lazarus embraced somebody at the last minute who went into hiding for a long period of time, came back out, and decided to reintroduce uh, the, the, the clan. Listen, it's a lot of shrouded mystery. We don't know what happened entirely. But that's basically the gist of it. I see the confusion in your face. I see it. I see it. I just have to say, <laughs> they painted the Lamia like they're the 47 Ronin. Right, their masters. <laughs> We're all died, going down together. And then five hundred years later, they synced up. Like you're coming to kill Augustus Giovanni. I know. We planned it. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, man, but uh, they also they they bring back like the Nagaraja in here. Oh um, yeah, forgot yeah, about them. Now they say there's only like maybe uh, like less than a dozen of them mm-hmm. in the entire world. So, of course, your player is going to be one of them. Oh, of yeah, um, of course. But, uh, your dozen players. They, uh, <laughs> your dozen players. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they are they kind of like eked out their own little section where they just like look for these these weak spots in the shroud kind of, you know, where uh, they can they can sit as the uh, as the gatekeepers and defenders, you know, to make sure only the right let the the right ones in and keep the wrong ones out, you know, type thing. I, but uh, I have to say, go ahead. I liked I liked the reasoning for why they showed up to the family reunion. It's just a snippet. I'd snuck out. I, uh, I saw they're like, yeah, so we lost our home. Uh, something <laughs> we, we used to live in the city in like the shroud. And uh, it's not here anymore because there's a big storm that just like washed it away. Uh, y'all wouldn't know anything about that, would you? And like, there's maybe twelve of us. So can we get like uh, a couch, maybe? Yeah, there's supposed to be some familial hospitality, right? Can I crash on your couch? Right. But uh, but I guess you know, with the Hakata, it, as much as some things change, the more they stay the same. So we still have an Anziani, mm-hmm. right? Poison. Still at the top, still kind of running things. But now it's not just Giovanni, right? I got a bit of everybody in there. Um, there's a there's a super elite club that nobody knows about. Very super. It's very hush hush. Only people who know who's in it are the other people who are in it, right? And we, we call them the the fourteen forty four. What? Right? Oh yeah, the fourteen forty four. If you don't know about it, it ain't for you. Okay, all right. <laughs> it's not for me. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. It's uh there was there was something important that happened uh, on fourteen forty four. But if if you don't know about it, I guess you weren't there then. Okay. But uh, on top of that, our surprise guest keeps popping in and out because, you know, like a like like an ex-girlfriend who's who's just broke up. Uh, he can't get enough. And uh, and he the, the capuchin will pop in and, and seemingly pass on guidance to individuals, you know, tell them about secret haven locations for their enemies. You know, just surprise stuff that maybe they didn't know about. Hey, this prince over here is weak. You should eat in and, and pull some domain. Oh yeah! Hey, thanks. Uh, see you. See see you next week. Maybe. Yeah. All right, all right, bye. <laughs> yeah. The. Uh, I guess here to kind of wrap things up, they they do add a, add some some cool new features, right? So we have we have new coterie types, mm-hmm. right? We have the family uh, coterie type, which is exactly what you think about. You know, an extended family of people related to you that are all in the business of uh, of making sure your business goes through. And uh, and then there's a gatekeepers um, uh, 
coterie type, which is kind of like the other side of it. Just a group of people that are dedicated to managing those things that go bump in the night. Mm-hmm. Uh, what really excites me is the new predator types. Yeah. This, um, mm-hmm. So beggars uh, exists already. Right? We're, we're familiar with it. But now as a Hakata, if you're a beggar, you gain a dot of oblivion instead of blood magic. Nice. So uh, which which is helpful because obviously you have the flaw that when you bite people, they scream loudly and often. <laughs> um, so so begging kind of works. There's also another one, the extortionist. And I'm not sure where they got this idea, but it's essentially somebody who uh, through power, influence and maybe brutish strength uh, convinces somebody else to fill a bag for them every week when they come around for protection. This is for the Luca Brazzi of Dakota, right? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, to me, that is a that is a great concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, just the extortionist feeding type. I, I thought that was hysterical and awesome. There's also grave robbers, which are oddly enough people who don't feed off dead bodies, as the name would suggest. Instead, they go to those who are mourning dead bodies and feed off them. Because they can't get enough of that sweet, sweet melancholy. Mm, grief is tasty. Some people just like being sad. So they're like, wait, are you saying they're Wolf Herald and Wedding Crashers? <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's exactly what they are. Only they bite. Oh, before we, <laughs> we, we close the page on this chapter, I do have one last question for you. Do they answer why they call it, they changed the name to the Hakata? Well, if you ask Lord Roger de Camden, he will tell you that if you think Cappadocius was the actual name of the founder, and that the clan's original name was Cappadocians, you're a fool. And you just don't understand how deep their history goes. Those are just poor slanderous remarks. Of course, it was always Hakata. That's what our original founding was, as Capuchin reminded us. <laughs> right? Okay. That Capuchin, dude. They don't actually say anything about, like, Hecate or anything? No. Okay. Nope. All right. I mean, but hey, we, we, we know where that origin comes from, right? You know, in the Greek mythology. Mm-hmm. Look it up, bro. Yeah. Fair enough. All right. I'll pick up this baton. Baton? All right. Is that what they have in relays? I've never ran a relay. But sure. anyway. It is a, it is yeah. a, a baton. <laughs> uh, it, yeah, we're at can chapter be four. if you want it to be. Chapter four is over mortal cults. Now, obviously, this is a game about vampires, so it's not solely mortal cults, right? But these are cults that actually bring in mortals, uh, usually in... Well, I guess in every situation, it's all like a pyramid scheme, right? Uh, I can. Th- there are a smattering of different cults <laughs> that they that they really go into detail about. Uh, everything from like somewhat benign, actually well intentioned, to just straight up every horror idea you could have in your mind about why a vampire would start with a cult. But uh, the first one is actually one that is uh, well, that best case scenario. Right. It's called House of Enterics. And what they what they preach, what they espouse is love, love, free love, whether that's, you know, you're polyamorous or like a true committed, like uh, monogamous relationship. They don't care. Ethically so non-monogamous. You, yeah. yeah. Uh, just so long as you are full of love, that is what they want you to be. But they're they're all insidious. Right. Because like all uh, every idea you have for a cult, there's um, they just draw you into this. Right. People who go to like. Uh, seminars, workshops, all this stuff keep coming back. You know, they get invitations to deeper and deeper things until eventually they move you into the giant compound in Arizona and you sell all your stuff and then give all the money to them. <laughs> right. But well, tell me, tell, tell me what's bad with love. Well, 
nothing, right? Nothing is bad with love. The problem is, and we see this in every vampire media, whenever a vampire is involved with something, they twist it, they corrupt it, they darken it because there is that undenying hunger of the beast that forces everything you do to be about blood in the end. And so here's my question, like more morality wise, um, that that's really interesting, because if you have a if you have something against like, uh, I don't know, taking blood from somebody who's not willingly ready to give it, what level are you willing to go to to make sure they're willing to give it? Oh, oh. And that's that's one of the things I loved about this cult. When you when they first move people into the compound, they'll start uh, doing like not really bloodletting rituals, but more like, you know, blood play in the bedroom because it's a, a love thing. But it's all between mortals. Right. So they oh, slowly yeah. build that up until surprise, surprise, the top two are vampires. But at that point, they're they're so into it. They're like, yeah. All right. Here's my blood. But by, by then, the blood play is like super hot, though. Right. <laughs> <laughs> kind of messed up, but um, well, insidious. Next one definitely goes from the uh, is the next step down from uh, best case scenario. This is called the Church of Means. This one threw me for a straight up loop because this is a hard cross between like a legitimate church and uh, a pyramid scheme or like a multi-level marketing. The idea behind the <laughs> church of means is that is is that happiness in this world comes from uh, material success that by bringing more people into this <laughs> church, you will accrue more money and thus be more happy. And it goes into the history of it where uh, this was this whole thing was started by a Tremere who was newly embraced before his sire uh, was called by the beckoning. So he has a low generation, but is really new. So he was like, shit, what do I got to do? Like, I'm I'm too, I'm literally too strong by dint of embrace to be ignored in politics. I'm also too young to really do anything. What's up? How do I make an impact on the pyramid? I know, a pyramid scheme. <laughs> right, that's what he did. That's exactly what he did. So that he goes through this process of like, the first thing he does is hire lawyers and accountants. That's step one to making Smart. this. All right. Smart. <laughs> so I already see why he went for it, Church of Means, right? Uh, those were those are the first two. Those are also kind of what I was expected when I was going into this. And it's after this point that my uh, every cult after this just like flips the table on my expectations. Mm. So this first one that's coming up is called Leah's Circle. This is a, for lack of a better description, is a goth vigilante cult. It started <laughs> by a vampire who was embraced and then abandoned. So she has no idea what it really means to be a vampire. She made a couple of logic jumps, probably because she was a goth, right? You're into all that. Uh, I, I would I would bet money that a goth would know more about like vampire pop culture than like a normal than like another person. Right. Not in that subgroup. Hot topics around for a reason. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> And uh, she she takes it and rolls with it. And her. So what she did is she got a, a group of friends. And she's like, all right, I'm a vampire now. I have to feed on blood. I don't want to be a bad guy. So she got her friends together and they just started beating the shit out of people that were like mugging people. OK, this fourth cult. I have to say, this is my all time favorite out of this entire book. Probably my favorite thing out of anything I read in this book. All right. Are you ready? Because you're going to want to shock yeah, yourself. Yeah, yes, I, I'm on the edge. Okay. I'm on the edge. This of my is seat. called the Dread Cult of Elagos. It starts out with this like Elagos was the individual that embraced Vlad Tepes, taught him everything he knew. He taught uh, <laughs> he taught the Countess Bathory her her ritual to immortality. Right. And then when, after that paragraph, 
it starts it the first sentence is like also none of this is true it's not even a vampire involved with this so get this a branch of mi5 right which is part of the second inquisition not long after they discover that blank bodies are a thing they start picking up evidence that humans are willingly helping vampires and like what what's going on where is all this <laughs> how are they getting this. all this devotion to them because it's not just cash they're being paid with so they realize that some of these vampires were doing cult like situations and um my first thought in this situation would be well there's already been plenty of evidence of like real world cult stuff right we can just look at that probably call a sociologist disguise some words or whatever MI5's idea, we're going to start a cult. We're going to start a cult and we're going to see how far we can push people. That's (laughs) what they did. So they founded this entire thing, tricked people into believing that they were willingly, that they were serving a vampire and they would do things like, uh, well, slowly escalate things, right? That's a recurring thing with cults. Like you might poison a supermarket. You might go murder someone just because we told you to. And then after they did that and succeeded in the tasks, the news wouldn't report anything because MI5 just covered it up on the back end. Local authorities would do nothing. So as this is happening, people are like, holy shit, we succeeded and something's actually like Eligos is real, right? <laughs> because it's his evil influence. And at one point it talks about how, all right, we, we got what we needed. Um, we have all our profiles and this is bad because people will go far. But the project leader was like, yeah, but you know what we should do instead of like turning it off? What's that? Eh, we should use them. Vampires use cults. Let's use cults. And they were like, great idea. Let's go. So they turned this cult that they started that believes they're worshiping vampires into a deniable asset to fight vampires. And I'm like, my head is like blowing up, right? Because now I'm going back into high school and reading all about these conspiracy theories, right? 9-11 was an inside job. Holy shit. That's who (laughs) these people were. (laughs) This is how it starts. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, And this is um, this fifth one I'm coming up to is going to be the last one I speak to at length. This was another uh, subverting the expectations. This is called the Order of the Broken Branch, right? And who these people are is they're a fraternity, like a college fraternity, but more like skull and bones, right? They were founded to be secret, even even amongst other university students. And what they did was they searched for basically enlightenment, right? Um, They got together, discussed politics discuss philosophy, uh, alchemy, but in the terms of philosophy, right, in a, a form of in, a pursuit of enlightenment. Uh, and then apparently, like basically a decade ago, some alumni found out that the S- Society of St. Leopold existed and asked the Society of St. Leopold, the hunters in the Catholic Church, hey, how can my organization help you guys? And like, I'm glad you asked. We need hunters and we need researchers. <laughs> it's like, all right, I think I've got an idea. <laughs> so they started sending agents who were young enough or looked young enough to college to join this university. And then they started like taking it over. And you might be thinking, uh, how good are university students at being hunters? They're not. They're not good hunters. They are great researchers. And that's what they use them for. They've turned this fraternity into a giant think tank. But uh, that one that one was out of left field for me, but I, I enjoyed it a lot. Enjoyed it a lot. Reminded me a lot more of like, um, I guess, like a, a hunter group solely made of Velmas. <laughs> hmm. uh, but from there, um, from there, we're going to jump into um, actually were there smaller ones um, real quick. There was only other one small sample cult I wanted to talk about because I thought it was awesome and 
circles back to something I think DJ was talking about where um, let me see. It was the the Temple of Endings, which is a, a cult founded by a Buddhist who was embraced and believes the pursuit of Golconda is another uh, is another um, a way to approach like uh, Buddhahood. So he's taking all these these um, Buddhist teachings and applying them to his vampire existence and finds it much simpler because he's only ruled by one undeniable hunger. <laughs> so fasting typically ends bloodily uh, and with a death. However, it's just one step on the path to, to Golconda or Buddhahood. Can we talk about what kind of a jerk embraces a monk, a Buddhist monk on top of it? I have no idea. Where? Where is this guy's sire? I hope he kicked him in the nuts. <laughs> yeah, right. I hope like a Shaolin monk right. just kicked him in the nuts. I would <laughs> like to believe that there are that there are some things where a vampire would look at and think, you know what? I don't hate myself that much. I'm not this much of a misanthrope or a nihilist, unless you're actually a nihilist, which would be interesting. But uh, anyway, in chapter five, this is uh, <clears throat> constructing a cult uh, because. Well, that's what this book's about, right? It's cults, players are going to want to build them. SDs are going to want to build them. Uh, there are a couple of things that are when you're there's a framework for building a cult, right? Like, why do they exist? I already talked, uh, mentioned this earlier. These are the big things, right? And really, the the only core things you need. You need the doctrine, the singular faith or idea behind why they exist. Uh, there's the activities, what they do. Uh to achieve their plans, then, of course, the plans, the goal, the reason why it actually exists and what it wants to accomplish. Now, nice. This section does go into different parts about occult. It does break it down. Talks about uh, different um, rituals to do, different sacraments, why these are important, why holidays are important, which sites to pick up. Um, all that's pretty well laid out and would be pretty dry to talk about. Uh, that being said, this is basically a technical manual as as to how to build a cult in the vampire game. This is not a technical manual on how to build a cult in real life. Though it might work. No, shut up, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> shut up. Uh, uh, try this, it out and tell us how it goes. <laughs> it does have some sample cults in the back. And um, biggest things to mention here are, uh, well, number one, a slew of example backgrounds for cults. And two, uh, different cult types which are yes. um, envoys. Uh, first one of these is called envoys. These are the missionaries. It's why I asked John earlier, like, hey, is that that traveler like a missionary or type? Because, well, that's that's one of the coterie types they talk about here. Mm. And the second one is a think tank, right? These dun, dun, dun. The, the think tank actually consists of like advisors or researchers, right? These are, well, obviously, right? But their purpose is uh, usually how to solve a specific problem or how to grow a cult. Uh, it talks about how in cults that have this, that have uh, cults that have large group growth, it's usually because of one of these guys. Also, I wanted to say one of the sample cults is the Order of Tolerate, which is one of the uh, Church of Set uh, that's uh, really close to Bahari. Right. <coughs> there's a there's a letter mm -hmm. in this where it's actually mm -hmm. like a, a correspondence be between a Baharist and a, a Church of Set. I'm going to call him a minister. Um about the existence of Lilith and her possibly being Sutek or Tauret. Uh And I found that incredibly interesting. Uh, so definitely give that a read. If Baharists or cult or uh, church of said is something you're interested in. I, oddly enough, like one of my favorite things from, from the later editions of E20, uh, when we were, when we were getting the, uh, the revised editions, they started throwing these weird letters in place. Mm -hmm. 
And we see it all over in Beckett's Jihad Diary, um, where there's just these weird perspective conspiracy theories that just get laid down and and possible contingencies and things like that is one of my favorite things to listen to and and read on. Because to me, those are sweet little nuggets in the middle of a you know, just uh, what what can sometimes be exhaustive reading, mm-hmm. but uh, it gives your mind time to wander. And that's always a great thing. Speaking of mind wandering, I bet you guys were wondering when we get to how to make Hakata. <laughs> oh, I see what you did Jesus, there. Why would you do this to us? I see what you did there. <laughs> All right. So I'll pick up the baton because we are. It is about that time, folks. Chapter six, Hakata, probably. A big reason why y'all bought this book in the first place. So now you finally get to learn the Hakata clan itself, learn all about their powers, learn who they are, all that good stuff. So pretty much chapter six, if you've seen any of the other um, ways they have presented clans in the core book or any other book in the line, it pretty much is the same flow, right? So you so you pretty much start out with, who are the Hakata, right? What are they about? And if, you ha- and if you haven't kind of picked up on the theme now, they're all about connection with each other, right? Family. Family ties. Yep. And it is them against the world, which is kind of the best way you can sum up their view. Like, they may fight with each other, like all families do, but if there's some kind of threat coming in from the outside... Boom. It is a hard wall and they're all going to well, protect we, each we've other. We've all seen that, right? Like uh, you get it even amongst your group of friends. Everybody has like that person they pick on. But if somebody else picks on oh, them, yeah. everyone's it's against that now. guy immediately. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah How dare you? <laughs> right. And that is definitely where the Hakata uh, kind of point of view is coming from. And that extends to the targets of who they choose to embrace. Right. So, you know, they are going to focus on, you know, people who, of course, are going to defend and protect their own families. Right. They're going to look for people who have that drive to do something great. Right. Because every family, when you got things to do, when you got plans on on the horizon. You need those people who are gonna who are going to say, "All right, we're doing this, this, and this. We're doing it right now." Those are the people they are, they are trying to track down. And from there, we switch to the disciplines, everyone's favorite power topic, because who doesn't love powers? Uh, three base. We got aspects. We got fortitude, and we got oblivion. Right. But here's the cool thing, right? So those can be swapped out, which is kind of the neat thing about it, right? Because the Hakata are made up of different groups, right? That the, that we've talked about. You got the Giovanni, you got the Nagaraja, to name a few. And depending on which kind of part of the family you choose, you can actually swap out some of those powers, which I thought was like a really cool touch because you can add your own personal little kind of flavor to it. Um, and oddly enough, like I've... And I do not know about you guys, but I've always had this theory that like one of the uh, powers in Vampire that was the least popular was anything related to like sight. So, yeah, aspects mm. nobody I, likes. And I can see yeah. that. I can see that amongst the cane bros. Yeah. What do you mean? What do you mean? Nobody likes aspects. It's like the first thing no. I go to. No, 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 no. We know. We know because you're not a cane no, bro. But you don't you don't have that 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 sickness. Running through your blood. <laughs> right. right. But, OK, so I think about kind of sickness. I got one power I can see really well. I got another power I can punch a hole through a car. I think we all know which power the cane is going to take. If you can't see the no. car, you ain't hitting nothing. <laughs> right. <laughs> but um, <laughs> so depending on your point of view, 
Uh, my theory is that nobody likes aspects because that is a power you get to swap out depending on which branch of the family you choose, right? So uh, if you choose uh, Giovanni, for example, right, you swap out your aspects for dominate, dominate, which makes yeah. sense mm-hmm. given that vibe mm-hmm. and same kind of flow, right? Uh, if you chose the Lamiai, for example, one of my favorites, they swap out the aspects for that potence. So cool little touches there. I, I got two questions yes, for you, sir. John, actually. Uh, how do you feel about that that uh, alternative idea at the end of that section, right, where you can have a four-dot merit where instead of it replacing, yeah. you can just take it as a fourth input? I saw that. Um, <clears throat> hmm. It's interesting. Like, so from, from a game perspective, I think it's kind of neat. Um, from a cultural perspective, um, I don't know, like, plot... Plot wise, you know, maybe this is something that they've kept uh, kept in the clan for so long. They've just gotten really, really pro at it. So if they've been, you know, trying to practice this skill or or this power for, you know, centuries, eh, maybe it makes sense that they've got that floating around. I don't know. What do you guys think? I'll tell you, I like it, um, but I think I'm biased <laughs> because it reminds me a lot of how bloodlines worked in Vampire. The oh, I see. Right. Because in every one of those, you had like, of course, every bloodline is off of a base Mm. plan, but they would add either a fourth discipline or a specific Mm. type of blood sorcery. Gotcha. Mm. I'm a fan of tradition, right? Like a a blood potency in the blood. A lot of people just think about it as as limiting, right? Like, oh, these are these are my disciplines. These are the only ones I could take. Well, the other ones are just way too expensive. You know, they cost way too much experience. It's it's not for me. I like the fact that some parts are weaker than others. I, I embrace mm-hmm. weaknesses. I don't know. I'm weird. Mm-hmm. It, no. And, you know, it's all good because they give you um, the way it's structured. They give you the choices, right? You can choose to play one way, choose to play the other. It's up to you. Um, yep. Oh, trust me, I got a really bad idea that you're not going to like my character submission for your game. Later. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait, Nick. I can't wait for this. <laughs> um, on that note, we get to their powers, Oblivion. And as I'm sure you could guess, it all deals with um, death and race and the shroud generally. Right. So I'm not going to go over every power because there's a lot mm-hmm. of them. Um, but. Given that they're about that world, you know, here's some range of things that they do with the blood. Uh, they can turn a dead body to ash. Super helpful when you've got a feed, right? You're like, oh, yep, the body in there no more. We're good to go. Um, what mistake. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and it goes from there. Um, you can, given your environment, you can take a peek at the shroud, which is that thing that divides the actual uh, human world from the world of the wraiths. And determine if it's yep. strong, if it's weak, and uh, what. And based off that information, you know, you can do certain things. Um, my personal favorite was their level five, which uh, causes a injury or any kind of plague or disease that somebody had previously overcome to come back. So if you like had broken, you know, your arms and one leg, boom, they're all rebroken again, which is just. Oh, so, so petty, but pretty cool. Um, Now, in addition to Oblivion, just the straight discipline power, much like uh, Thaumaturgy, they got ceremonies as well. And you can do some cool stuff with those, um, including raising zombies, uh, Mm -hmm. personal favorite. Mm -hmm. And if and if 
you're ever curious about, gee, what are the stats of zombies? They got you. <laughs> of course they of do. Of course. Why not? Um, and even if you have a burning desire to take your group into the Shadowlands itself and chill with some raids, you can do that. Uh, they're level five, I believe. Uh, ceremony allows you to actually pass through into and um, pass across the shroud into the Shadowlands itself, which I thought was pretty pimp. Yeah, and once again, another another one of those classics coming back from the Dark Ages. Yep. Um, and I'm and DJ, yeah. DJ, you're about to say something. Yeah. So one of the things about that as well is. <clears throat> They mentioned that the biggest thing with Oblivion, especially for you folks listening, you're like, oh, here we go. The the Sombra meme to tap into Oblivion versus Hikado tapping into Oblivion is they, they form two different ways of utilizing Protean, much in the same way that now we see as well that, you know, ministry members, now even Zemitsi, the, the mm-hmm. Gangrel, tap into a specific dip- discipline is based off of how they look into it. I think the, the line that strikes me the most is notably while the Sombra are prone to expanding the repertoire of Oblivion powers. The Hikata focus their energies on developing more ceremonies. Ceremonies take mm-hmm. longer, but are required for commuting with and the passage through the lands of mm. the dead, which is really distinctive there. Really, really distinctive because they spend so much more time creating those ceremonies where you actually do get to see why those necromantic rituals do work out that particular way. And whereas the Lasambra would not be as, you know, prone to, to looking to create and spending time with it because if they want to flash pan it now, it's all about the power here and now. <laughs> yep. And so that gives you a better idea of why you would be going a specific you know, discipline tree regarding oblivion and choosing those particular paths versus, you know, some of the oblivion powers that you might see that might seem a little bit weaker mm. uh, on the onset. But when you pair that up with a ceremony, now now you're now you're dropping yeah. bombs. And, and um, one of the other uh, interesting things about uh, when they actually rouse to use these powers. So um, if they fail on a one or a 10, they don't just also get a hunger. They get a stain as well, which I think is interesting, right? Because that kind of speaks to uh, the power source, right? Like, oh. like these are things coming from across the shroud. These like uh-huh. this is not just straight, you know, potent stuff going on here. Like there's some darker things going on here that is going to bring that into the character, which I thought was pretty cool. Awesome. Outstanding. Uh, DJ, tell us about uh, Bloodlines and Lore Sheets. Brian and I, taking a look at this, mm-hmm. have been pouring over it, and it's one of the fun things here. But to start off, normally speaking, the rule in most cases is one lore sheet for most vampires, right? Because you want to take a look at how you don't stack up, and you mm-hmm. want to make the story very unique. In some cases, obviously, storyteller discretion will go ahead and change a little bit of it, but rule yeah. of thumb is usually one. Because of the fact that most of these uh, lore sheets that you're taking a look at are also bloodlines, bloodlines change over, uh, and you could add that particular lore sheet onto your uh, and to stack up rather. So that was really cool because mm-hmm. then you don't have to be forced to pick out certain things. I also liked how they recommended for the previous mm, yeah. bloodline sheets, right? The Descendants of Helena, of Hardestad, of Xavier, mm-hmm. all that. They also recommended you apply that uh, as well. Mm-hmm. So it's good to see that they're retroactive, like uh, uh, cognizant of right. it, right? Yeah, it just became practical. It was just a pragmatic decision to be right. like, hey, it makes sense. You know, the bloodline shouldn't affect it particularly. However, However, once again, folks, because we always come across this, um, and there's even a rata for this, those lore sheets don't stack like backgrounds do. So right. as you start reading them, remember, every one that you purchase is individual of each mm-hmm. other. It's, it's, a, it's a whole thing. Um, going into it, though, we'll start off with the Bankers of Dunstern. Um, but besides going into everything, which are the ones that stood out the most for you, Brennan? Oh, man. Um, I got to say, going through these, like I, I liked every one of them. 
I really did. Duncern were always one of my favorites, but going over it, it's kind of what I expected. They're bankers, they're cannibals, their backgrounds, their lore sheets are about cash. <laughs> that's, that's what it is, <laughs> right? Uh, so my favorite one to read, probably the Children of Tenochtitlan, the, the Pisanobs. Mm. That was that was probably my favorite, although it's a close. It's a close with um, uh, probably the Gorgons, you know, so probably some solidarity with John there. But uh, uh, the Pisanobs, because I didn't know about a lot about them before this book came out. So I did a lot of back reading, right? And these guys were these guys were badasses. These were necromancers, like Aztec mm-hmm. necromancers that the Giovanni like basically forced to to join. And these were the guys that were that were mostly going toe to toe with the Harbingers before the family reunion, right? Pockley died to settle that bet or that that grudge, right? And they even say in that that it, the the reasoning is kind of unknown as to why they focused on the Pisanobs at first. I would think because the Harbingers were Sabat, and you know the Pisanobs are still in Mexico which is one of the fortresses of the Sabbat that would have a lot to do with it, but maybe they had something else back there. But um, I think for them, uh, one of the, the thoughts under lore sheets that I like the most was forward thinking, which is like you're being yes. hunted down continuously by the Harbingers. Um, and that being the case, you know, once per story, you could reroll any skill roll, which is cool. In addition, you always get one free skill reroll in any scene in which you work against another Hikata. Right. Because the Hikata in question happens to be a Harbinger, you get an additional success on that reroll just because. <laughs> because, yeah, because, again, this intro story, Maria Ibarra, I believe is what her name was. She was a Pisanob. Her story was one of revenge. And this that made me that made me love this book, that intro story. And this encapsulates all of that. So if I were to make any any um, Hikata character, it would be a Pisanob out the gate anyway. Oh, and their their fifth one. Next in line, you're the next in line to be the leader of the Pi Snobs. Well, you're the next in line of the most hated people in the Hakata, or maybe not the most hated, but the most that are dead, <laughs> right? <laughs> so that's a that's a big responsibility, but that could make a, a hell of a chronicle. John, what about you? Did you have a particular bloodline one that you liked, along with like a specific dot in that particular fa- that tree? So as I've said, I make no bones about this. I'm a big fan of Cappadocians and anything related to them. So that would include the Lamiae. So the Gorgons, mm-hmm. 227, personal favorite. And probably of that, mm, I would say protection, just because that's how I view their role. Like they are the ones in front taking all the uh, taking all the shots and uh, the bombs mm-hmm. and the blood. Mm-hmm. So protection, you embody the original purpose of the of the Lamiae. Protection of your charge by any means necessary. You gain a two dot bonus when using the block maneuver. To protect somebody else. Nick, do you have any particular favorites on your end? Or I actually do. Um, there's there's a bunch of stuff in here I like. All right, let's not lie. Um, I'm a fan all across the board. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, there's a there's there's something I want to highlight, like because uh, it's a uh, it's the it's the cheater method of the future, which is which comes out of the Duncerns, uh, and it's uh, <laughs> it's four dots. It's called money multiplies. Yeah. And uh, it essentially what it does is it it bolsters the capability of your entire coterie to gain resources. Right. Mm-hmm. So essentially, uh, if if your coterie has any flaws, uh, you know, like um, like destitute or anything like that, they're gone. And then in addition to that, any memory or any member of your uh, of your coterie can purchase resources at two points instead of three. Yeah, that is baller. 
If I would yeah. run it, I'd throw mm-hmm. out that older sheet that I hate it. <laughs> but if I were a player, no. if I were a player <laughs> and every one of us were in a coterie, he'd be damn sure I'd make a Dunsern with it. <laughs> I'm shameless about it. Uh, the uh, the next one that shows up is a servitor of Ryride. Mm-hmm. They, uh, if you're a cane bro, this is this is a lore sheet for you. Uh, the five one is another bomb. Kill thy brother. Uh, essentially, Ooh. once per story, when using a weapon or power that inflicts aggravated health damage to a vampire, your attack deals an additional two damage, and that- you don't need to roll to resist a frenzy of that weapon uh, involved a power can, of fire. Uh, can we talk about some of their aims for a minute? Like this, w- this threw me for a loop. This is another table flipper because I feel like this is just a cult of table flippers in 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 the <laughs> jihad, right? Because I believe their entire thing is they'd be members of Anarchs of Sabbat of Camarilla and their entire purpose is to just thwart the plans of other people because they're supposed to be serving the third generation. And I'm pretty convinced they're not serving shit. <laughs> no, they're, they're serving uh, the bro of Cain. They're serving the player. <laughs> they're serving the bro of Cain. Right. <laughs> like I guess it could be argued, right? That they're mm-hmm. that through their, their, their crazy capability of, uh, of just causing, you know, like a sheer unrest they're enforcing the uh, the well the the chaos that that keeps the antediluvian or keeps everyone from binding against the antediluvians, right? Yeah, you could you could see that. Yep. I mean, yeah. It, right? I mean, it works. I'm not saying no, right? But that's that's also like us high thinking it and being like, okay, this is how we would make it playable. We could see where we could be antagonists down that particular route, especially with this character. Um, but also, the practical application is, you know. Mm-hmm. It's Cambro approved. <laughs> Killing everything with this. Yeah. Yeah. Murder. Enjoy it. Practical application. Serve the antediluvians with pride and a big stick. And that covers up lore sheets. And then yeah. uh, that brings us over to chapter eight, which is Sticks and Bones, which is uh, a chronicle you'd be able to run. Nick, take that away. So uh, uh, we do get some interesting stuff out of here. I'm just going to preface it right off the bat. Um, it, it builds a scenario for us, but it builds a scenario for us in a setting. So we see something we haven't seen before, which is the city of Munich. Uh, we haven't heard much of Munich uh, other than just, you know, it was part of the, the fights of the Black Cross. And it, it kind of tells you the back history of everything that's happened in Munich and and kind of where it got to today. And, and going through that, it's uh, it's interesting. You should give it a read. And uh, and I think it's uh, it's it's pretty exciting because the great thing about Munich is uh, that they they have a pretty strong Second Inquisition presence there uh, through their GSG 10. I'm not going to try and pronounce it. Um, GSG 9. <laughs> GSG nine? Uh, no, it's GSG ten because it's the next uh, level. Oh, the next next, yeah, the good good. It's that it's that next level. <laughs> so you get uh, what these guys are is uh, you know they're they're like a, a special police force, mm-hmm. and and obviously these guys become aware of kindred, and then like in a night they smoke the hierarchy. Yeah, in a night in one planned attack, mm-hmm. and the, and the few who got away, there are some who got away, um, but it wasn't the prince. And and the people who rose from the ashes, you know, like reconstructed the city and, uh, you know, and kind of and built it the way that the modern Camarilla has to. But these guys are still on the hunt. They're still on the prowl. They're very patient. And when anything out of natural happens in their city and trust me, it's got a super low crime rate. They'll notice mm-hmm. and, uh, and immediately they get they get sniffed on. And so that kind of sets us into the, the scenario that we're in with the with the story, because your characters end up going to a feast. And uh, and essentially they get they get talked into, you know, recovering an artifact so that they can resurrect Constancia, the priestess of bones from beyond mm. the shroud, from beyond the tempest. And it's like, OK, all right, I'm on board. You go. Uh, 
and uh and, and you you do get the the artifact and, and you're able to to go through this this crazy ritual with uh you know we there's a harbinger there and uh you know then there's also a um some uh some asian uh uh hakata involved too which you get to see which is super interesting and yeah uh, Osano, that character looks interesting in general yeah yes yes he is they actually they put a great background in him they don't use him enough in the story in my opinion to, but the background is great. So uh, if you get a chance, take a look at that. And uh, so you do end up uh, resurrecting her, right? And you you bring her back as a risen because you have to go out and smoke a dude just to bring back an empty vessel uh, for her to fill up. And obviously you can't be tearing limbs off in the streets because that's not a very good vessel for your new uh, crazy Cappadocian elder. Um, she comes back as a risen and immediately just kind of goes off and starts doing amazing stuff trying to figure out the modern world but something crazy happens as soon as she comes back murders happen murders that are unheard of so you know you wake the next day you you actually dream it haunts the coterie they dream these murders as they're happening and there's multiple murders but you know you get sat down in front of the prince and the prince says i don't know what you did i don't think you did the murder but you better figure out what did it (laughs) otherwise this is on you and uh, and they're like, all right. So uh, you know, immediately you're off to the you're off to the races to try and track down this murder. As night after night, these murders are happening, and uh, you know, given a, a an amount of time, the, the the clues start to come together, and you have a bunch of different people you you run into and interact with who kind of drop tiny little clues to you, and you end up finding out that it has something to do with uh, with Constancia, you know, performing a super dark ritual, and uh, and I'm not going to tell you exactly what happens after that. But uh, but know that it gets to the point where the second Inquisition notices what's happening and they get involved and the player coterie has to do some very creative things to kind of like figure out how to how to handle these issues, both in clan, out of clan with the cam and uh, with the, the new risen elder and uh, and the second Inquisition bearing down on it. And so, I mean, all in all, it's, it's not a terrible story. And uh, and it's great to see some old favorites come flying back, you know, with a. Uh, with Constancia, at least, mm-hmm. you know, and they do, they do give you a bit of back history. So if, if you're like uh, one of those people who like doesn't have like the full awareness of, of all that stuff, don't worry about it. They, they explain it along the way. You don't need to read 30 uh, dark ages books like the rest of us uh, to try and understand what's happening here. And it also gives you some crazy little like uh storyline options that are like off to the side things, you know, like you could make a story about this and make a story about that. You know, like the cult of Menelay and, uh, you know, in Helena, they start fighting each other and it spills into the streets and the, and the masquerade is stretched, you know, mm-hmm. like the different stuff like that. It's, it's all good ideas for stuff. You could just stand an entire chronicle up on uh, to be a hundred percent honest with you. They talk about like a prince, a seneschal and a sheriff, which end up being like a, a Toreador, a, uh, Venturu and a, and his amis who try to recreate the triumvirate from Constantinople. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Mm. Right. You know, like crazy weird ideas, like because, of course, you can never let Constantinople die. It's just the same as Carthage. Um, but uh, so, yeah, there's 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 cool, interesting stories in here. Take a look at it. Breeze through them. Enjoy. Smile. And uh, and hopefully you're inspired because I know there's a couple in here we've even used uh, in our chronicles. Um, so uh, I guess take a look through that. And enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Like all in all. What I really wanted to do was uh, was kind of get a feeling for you guys and what you thought about this book. I loved it. Like, hands down, I love this book. 
Uh, this is this is great because it um, uh, cults are always something like uh, they're they're a scary thing. Right. But they're also they're also incredibly interesting. There's a reason why Eyes Wide Shut is such a such a popular movie. Right. Uh, and <laughs> yes. this, this this brings it to the <laughs> forefront of uh, uh, of the game uh, goes into things like I, I like a lot after being exposed like to uh, to Sabat, like especially Bahar's Church of uh, Followers, a set where some where a clan I always forgot about until recently. Uh, and started reading more and more, especially during the Dark Ages, right? But this puts all of that at the forefront in a modern context. Yes. You guys are fans of mm. followers of Set, of Baharis, of uh, the former clan Giovanni, right? Or any of its now new members of the Hakata. I, I would say this is a must buy. Mm, definitely. Yeah. And uh, same. This book is fantastic. Um, it really helped me understand because like this was something I never really got. Um mainly up until this book was like how vampires could use faith to control. Cause that's what vampires do pretty much. <laughs> like they, they, they feed and, and they control those around mm-hmm. them. And faith is just one other tool in their toolbox to be able to control. Right. Uh, and, and it just shows you a really cool way that makes sense with the world about how they would go about that in a wide, in a wide array of, you know, ways to do that. And the Cappadocians, because they're but awesome. not just control, not just of mortals, right? Which is what I always oh, thought of. Oh, exactly. But also vampires yeah, exactly. in general, right? That yep. that was exactly. an eye opener for me in this one, like in the in the earlier. Quotes. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And um, the like um, the the one thing that I, I really enjoyed uh, again from that opening chapter was to explain why kindred would be attracted to these in the first place, and it's because their world is kind of going through some stuff right now and when <laughs> and 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 when things are breaking down when when you got trouble all around you you turn to faith to help you out and that's what the kindred are doing mm-hmm. right now on my end um i love this book more than chicago by night uh, whereas the, nice. the reason i say that is because mm, chicago by night has a feeling of of, it's us revisiting an old lover, right? It's us having yep. going through. We already had two uh, Chicago by Nights to take a look at. We've seen the the world of Chicago kind of evolve, and whereas it was a great stab and it was a great ch- big chunky book where we got a lot of good stuff out of it, this is this is completely all new. There's nothing in this book I didn't like at all. The mm-hmm. art is beautiful. There's even one like in the back in the Six and Stones where it shows you know uh, a, a female who just finished coming back from her first change and had ripped everything apart, like. Uh-huh. It, it, that art was just perfect in general. Every piece of art was evocative. It, it portrayed what it needed to. The material was all new in terms of how it could also not only be presented to folks coming back into it, but especially newer players who haven't had the opportunity to visit V20 and V5 as their first breath to it. You know, so for, for us, you know, as we were mentioning before, like, oh, Church of Sight, we've seen this before. But like for a new player, it explains it and truncates it in such a way that it works out. Um, the reintroduction of the Hakata as well. Um, the Strife as well like we were talking family the the, the yep. inner strife of the family and the fact that they're each other's throats and that most of their lore sheets benefit the backstabbery of each other <laughs> <laughs> but get to, to play against everyone else was, was probably uh, the highlight as well for me if anything at all i would uh, i hold this book dear to my heart uh, and it definitely does surpass uh the initial chicago by night book in terms of like big chunky book that everyone must own yeah it blew away my expectations just just right out the gate and and one of the things, so I'm a big fan of uh, of different lines of of the Hakata, right? So 
I'm a big fan of Giovanni. I'm a big fan of Cappadocians. Uh, I'm a big fan of, uh, of even the rare bloodlines. Uh, but what I never liked about them, and, and mostly coming in through, uh, through V20, is they never seemed to fit. And uh, it was mostly because they wrote them that way, right? And a lot of it was trying to layer on upon layer on upon layer on, you know, the writing that had come in the past. And obviously, like, the glory days of the Cappadocians were, were back in the Dark Ages. If you want to see Cappadocians be awesome, you have to go back to the Dark Ages, you know. And if you want to play a Harbinger of Skull, it's always going to be, like, in this, this weird subset of the, uh, of the, of the Sabbat, in which I think it, it kind of chokes them with, with, mm-hmm. with everything that they're, they're, they're truly capable mm-hmm. of. And Absolutely. then you come, you come back in, and then you kind of see where, the, where, they, where they've moved everything now. And it, even if it's a tentative piece, and it is a tentative piece, and they give you the perspective of everybody on what they think of everybody else to kind of really let you wrap your brain around uh, kind of how all this stuff happened. Because there's a lot of people who are just like, there's no way this could happen, right? I, because of the stuff that be, they said before, there's no way this could happen. And you go to looking through it, and, and obviously, you know, you spend some time and, and, and read what their new perspectives are. It starts to kind of click together. But what I like about this is it seems like you're dealing with all the great stuff of the past in the place it belongs, doing the thing it should be doing and being awesome while it does it. And that's the part that that really kind of, well, uh, impressed me the most about this book. I think they did a great job of tying these things together they and they and it could have been it could have been a disaster. Mm. I, I suppose on, on that on that glorious end note, we're, we're going to call it there. And yeah. probably because we've we've. Dragged on for quite some time. I am so tired. <laughs> but it was so fun, though. It was, it was definitely yeah. worth it for us. Yeah. It was great, guys. But yeah, I want to thank everybody for, uh, for tuning in, listening. Obviously, we're releasing this a little bit earlier than we normally do because we want to get it out to you as fast as we can. And, uh, and as you can see, obviously, we're super excited about this book. But, uh, you know, in, enjoy it. In, enjoy the podcast. And uh, we'll, we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to our 25 years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast. If you liked what you heard, please reach out and let us know on Twitter at 25 years of VTM at our email info at 25 years VTM.com on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash 25 years VTM or on our website www.25yearsvtm.com If you would like to support us, we can be found at patreon.com slash 25 years of vampire the masquerade.